This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On October 25th, the Washington Post hosted political leaders and analysts for a special 2018 midterm election preview event. Led by the Washington Post reporting team of Dan Balls, Paul Kane, and Karen Tumulty, the discussions reveal what's at stake for the candidates and the country on Election Day and the consequences for 2020 and beyond. In this segment, Senator Chris Van Hollen, chairman of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, outlines his party's strategy for the final two weeks of the election, what issues are animating the Democratic base and his party's agenda after November 6th. Let's listen. Good afternoon, I'm Libby Casey, the Politics and Accountability On Air anchor here at The Washington Post, and I'm pleased to be joined by Senator Chris Van Holland, Democrat of Maryland, also, of course, the chairman of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to be with you. You can uh, send us your questions for Senator Van Holland by using the hashtag post live, uh, and we'll be able to share some of those as time permits. I want to just start with the current climate of aggression right now. We have these 10 bomb packages that are being investigated that were sent to Democratic leaders throughout the country or critics of President Trump, one news organization. Uh, President Trump is blaming the media for creating anger in society. Where is the lane in these last two weeks before Election Day for appropriate political anger, political fighting, and political discourse in that climate? Well, what I hope and what we're seeing in a lot of states where, where candidates are actually campaigning is voters are focused on the issues. Uh, and so I'm hoping that through all this clamor, um, we're able to talk about the issues. But it is, of course, a very serious moment uh, in the country when you have people essentially uh, getting death threats and having these pipe bombs mailed. Uh, the president had a, a fleeting moment at the, of unity at the White House yesterday before he then went on the campaign trail and blamed everybody in the country uh, except himself uh, for the current toxic political environment. Uh, and I think the reality is that we've seen a whole lot of division uh, out of this president, this White House. Uh, he again attacked the press uh, last night, uh, essentially saying that the press was to blame. Uh, refusing to shoulder uh, any of the blame himself. But what I'm hoping and what I'm seeing in the campaigns around the country is people are focused on real issues they wake up every morning thinking about. So uh, health security and whether or not they're going to have protections for pre-existing health conditions. Um, are their wages uh, sufficient to make sure that they can pay the rent? Uh, and make good for their family. So those are the issues that uh, our candidates are really focused on. Do you want those to be some of the closing arguments, talking about health care, um, talking about what? What do you want voters to go to the ballot box thinking about? Well, we're focused on issues that we're hearing the voters caring about. So this is not sort of a, a top-down strategy. It's really a bottom-up, grassroots uh, approach. Uh, what happened was last year, uh, when there was the big battle uh, to overturn the Affordable Care Act, all of a sudden, uh, in every state in the country, people began to realize just what was at stake. And that was true whether you were a rural hospital, a suburban hospital, or whether you were in an urban area. All these health care groups 
who had nothing to do with politics, like the American Cancer Society, American Diabetes Association, long list, all came out and said, don't do this. Don't take away protections for people with pre-existing conditions. They didn't say it as Republicans or as Democrats. They just said it as patients and consumers. And so that is the issue that is on the top of voters' minds. And when voters learn that uh, incumbent Republican senators and Republican candidates uh, are working to undo protections for people with pre-existing conditions, yeah, that gets their attention. And that is why that is such an important part of the debate. And yet Republicans who are running against some of your candidates, some of these Republicans, even attorneys general of, of states that have challenged Obamacare, are themselves running on a message saying, I'm going to keep your pre-existing conditions. I have sick family members as well. I, f I feel your pain, basically. Right. So they're saying, I feel your pain on the one hand. And on the other hand, and with the other hand, they are taking away protections for people with pre-existing conditions. So, for example... Is that message getting through to voters? Absolutely. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the ads on TV in these uh, different states, the battleground states right now, over 50% are focused on health care issues because Republicans have put themselves in a very vulnerable position uh, because they have called for taking away these protections. They are now, you know, running ads saying that's not true. Uh, but you mentioned the lawsuit, right? The Attorney General of Missouri, the Attorney General of uh, West Virginia. They're both party to that Texas lawsuit that, if it's successful, will strip away protections for people uh, who have pre-existing conditions. That's just a fact. And so, you know, the president can tweet out, you know, Republicans are fighting for people with pre-existing conditions. But the reality is that they're doing the opposite. And I, I do think voters... On this issue, it's very personal to them. This is, this is an issue that uh, is something important to them and their families, and they are paying very close attention. How hard is it to break through a chaotic news cycle with some of these closing arguments and messages? I mean, we've been ping-ponging from Kavanaugh to what Fox News is billing as the, the caravan crisis, uh, now this concern over attacks against Democrats. Uh, who benefits from such a chaotic news cycle? Well, you know, my sense is that um, the, the president is very good at distracting people, especially when you're talking about the cable news cycle. Uh, but when you're talking about local news coverage in a lot of these races, a lot of the attention, again, goes back to the issues that are important to people in those states and locally. So you don't get nearly as much uh, coverage of some of these more polarizing issues on an ongoing basis um, when it comes to state uh, and local news. And again, our candidates, when they're out on the campaign trail, um, they're talking directly to voters and they're talking about these issues voters care about. I can tell you, um, voters were rightfully very alarmed the other day uh, when Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, said, you know, now that we did this tax cut and we got $2 trillion added to our national debt, we're going to have to do something about it. We're going to have to come after cuts to Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid, uh, which is exactly what many of us have been predicting. And the Medicare cuts are part of the Republican budget uh, that a lot of these Republican senators voted for. Those are the issues. Those are important issues to families. Is you know, Are they going to see their Medicare uh, support cut? So uh, what we're finding is that, yes, there's always the latest tweet out of the White House, but most voters, not cable news, but most voters, they're focused on what they care about, what they wake up thinking about every morning. And yet, President Trump's approval rating has gone up. 
and he is talking about things on the campaign trail um, that are actually not true. For example, saying that Republicans are going to achieve another middle-class tax cut, a 10% middle-class tax cut, um, claims about the caravan of migrants, that Democrats have somehow instigated this. Where do you go with that? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you punch back that messaging? Well, let's just take the tax issue for an example, because uh, I think some people pointed out to the president that, in fact, the Senate and the House are not in session, so you can't pass uh, a 10% uh, middle-class tax cut at this moment in time. But actually, the, the issue's, actually, I think, more significant than that, uh, because the fact that the president felt he had to say he's going to come back and do a middle-class tax cut just tells us what we're hearing from people around the country, which is that first tax cut did not help folks in the middle. It was a huge giveaway to big corporations and to very wealthy people. And it ran up the debt, a trillion dollars. And they are now saying that they're going to come back and make these cuts to Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Democrats have always supported a middle-class tax cut. We would have welcomed the opportunity to target tax cuts toward the middle class. Uh, and the fact that the president now says that's what he wants to do tells me that they're admitting that round one just didn't do uh, the trick. And in fact, what we're seeing is over $750 billion in stock buybacks from big corporations. 35% of shareholders of U.S. stock are actually foreign shareholders, and so that money's going into foreign accounts. And the promised $4,000 a year wage increases, <laughs> people around the country are going, I don't, I don't, I don't see that. Um, and so, uh, again, what we're seeing is that th what the Republicans had hoped to run on was going to be the last tax cut. Now you got the president saying, well, that didn't really work out the way we wanted. Um, maybe we'll try something else. But do you think that message is getting through to voters? Because it's, it's always hard to counter the, the loud megaphone any president has and, and the, the, the national presence, the national stage, especially if we're not always working with facts. You know, it, again, it, it is when you're part of a national conversation, and you're right, you're not always working with facts uh, when it comes to this president's uh, Twitter account and these pres this president's statements. But that is what the state-by-state the -state campaigns are all about. Uh, we don't see it as much in this area, but if you go to one of our major battleground states um, and you turn on your television or your radio, the debate you will hear primarily is on these issues. As I said, healthcare is dominating uh, the debates um, in these Senate races. Uh, and again, because you have Republicans, as you say, they're, they're now trying to run away from votes they may have cast. I mean, Dean Heller from Nevada, he, he said publicly he was going to protect Nevada. He was not going to support a bill that undid protections for pre-existing conditions. He went to the White House. The president twisted his arm, and he reversed himself. That's an important issue to people in Nevada. Uh, and so we're seeing that in Nevada. In Arizona, um, Martha McSally's the Republican um, candidate. As a member of Congress, she voted for the Republican budget. It calls for about $500 billion in cuts to Medicare. That's what they're talking about uh, in Arizona. So uh, I think that uh, these are issues that, at least in each of the states, people are focused on. I couldn't agree with you more in the sort of, uh, again, the sort of cable news environment. 
um, it has been very difficult to break through. But that's what campaigns are about, trying to break through state by state. And I'm not questioning the, the factual basis of President Trump desiring a middle class tax cut, just the fact that there is not literally time to do it um, before, uh, before Election Day in just 12 days. So, Senator, how are you feeling in, in these last 12 days? And how, you know, what will you be watching on Election Night, say, 9 p.m., that will yep. make you feel either really depressed or really optimistic about, <laughs> about Democrats' prospects for taking back the Senate? So uh, for me, this is the first time in a long time I've not been on the ballot myself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the the six-year Senate term is a good thing. I like that. Um, but I feel like I am. I mean, I feel nervous along with um, so many other people throughout the country because this is such an important uh, midterm election. And uh, what we are also seeing in some of these very, even red states, states that Trump won, is what voters want are senators who are going to stand up first and foremost for their states. And that means holding the president accountable, means working with the president if the president's got a proposal that's good for their state, uh, means opposing the president if the proposal is not good for their state. And in many of these farm states, tariffs, for example, have been very harmful to the economy. I will be, look, uh, the Democrats in the Senate have a very tough political map, right? We have 34 races, 26 of them are Democratic incumbents. Eight are uh, Republican uh, seats. Uh, so our approach has been hold plus two. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you know, the states that we are most focused on uh, have been those states that Donald Trump won, where we have Democratic senators. And then uh, we've been very focused on a number of other states, like Nevada, Arizona, big race in Tennessee, big race in Texas, interesting races in places like Mississippi. Uh, I will probably be, I will be looking first at the uh, states, of course, on, on the East Coast. I think that Bill Nelson uh, is going to win in Florida. Uh, Rick Scott has been, oh my God, he just put another eight million of his own money uh, into the race just the other day. Uh, but the reality is on issues like climate change, gun safety, no oil drilling around the coast, Bill Nelson has been with the people of Florida. Uh, so I will be looking at the Florida race. Uh, I'll be looking at a lot of the House races uh, because a lot of the House races in some of these swing districts will be indicators uh, as well of how things are, are going. How different is the map in the Senate? You've obviously worked on re-election efforts in the House extensively. Yeah. How different is this math for you right now? Well, it's, it's very different, um, starting with the fact, of course, that you know in the Senate only one-third of the Senate's up. Uh, whereas every House's seat is up. And so House races, for that reason, are much more uh, susceptible to waves, right? Because every single House race is up. Whereas in the Senate, first of all, only a third of the Senate's up at any one time. Uh, and then we have a lot of states that, you know, Trump won by big margins. Uh, when um, we, we started uh, this reelection cycle, you know, more than a, almost two years ago now, um, people were predicting major Senate Republican gains in the Senate because we are defending 26 seats, including 10 states that Donald Trump won. And we have only one state uh, where you have an incumbent Republican senator that Hillary Clinton won, that's Nevada. Uh, but what's happened is you've seen this great sort of grassroots energy, um, not just among Democrats, but also among a lot of independent voters who do want a Congress that will hold the president accountable. Um, 
and so uh, you know that's that's what's at stake in this election and what we are seeing is that voters even in very republican states uh, want people who are going to fight for their state and not be rubber stamps uh, for the president where does the path to victory in the senate run through what are what are some of the must-haves must-wins well, in the Senate, look, I mean, you have to win a whole lot if you're talking about um, a path to a Senate Democratic majority. There is a credible path, I will say, and I've said this for almost two years now, it's a, it is a very narrow path. As I said, you've got to hold plus two. You've got to hold 26 um, and then pick up two of eight or, or some other combination. Uh, and the, the good news for us is that because we have so many senators whose DNA is, you know, you know, in their state. They've been fighting for their state, and uh, the people of those states have said, at least so far in all the surveys we've seen, uh, we want somebody who's going to fight to, you know, protect our health care, right? We don't want somebody who's going to uh, support getting rid of protections for pre-existing conditions. We want folks who are going to uh, support middle-class families, protect Medicare, Social Security. Medicaid. Uh, and so that is why we're so focused on those uh, issues, because that's what people in those states tell us they're interested in. Let's look at Heidi Heitkamp running on some yeah. of those very issues, knows right. her state very well. Yep. Um, how concerned are you about that race? Well, never count Heidi Heitkamp out. Uh, that is a lesson um, that I think everybody in, in North Dakota learned last election, you know, last cycle, six years ago. Uh, with one week to go, um, Heidi Heitkamp was behind by more than 10 points, and she came back and won. I can tell you the public polls that show Heidi Heitkamp way behind by double digits do not square at all with what we're seeing. That said, that said, Heidi Heitkamp is in a very tough race. She knows it. She said it. But she's an incredible, you know, fighter for the people of North Dakota. And uh, I, I would never count Heidi Heitkamp out, and um, I think she has a very good chance still to cross the finish line first. I will say that um, the Republicans in the state legislature there have done everything they can to try to uh, reduce and suppress voter turnout, especially among Native Americans. Uh, you probably saw that they changed state law uh, to disenfranchise. Um, thousands and thousands of Native American uh, voters. In fact, they were very blatant about the fact they did it after Heidi was elected uh, six years ago. So the silver lining there is all of a sudden um, people, especially Native Americans and others, are very energized to get out to vote. Nothing motivates people to come to the polls than when people tell them they're going to try and take away their right to vote. So people are going to work. Uh, they're helping. Uh, get people the addresses they need, um, and uh, let's see. Because there's concerns that you have to have a physical address rather than a mailing address, which is not always common. Yes, on, lot, on lots of um, you know uh, reservations, you use a post office box. You don't have a mailing address, and so what the legislature did was say you can't vote unless you have a mailing address. Uh, but uh, the tribes are working very quickly uh, to assign everybody. Um, a street address that, that meets all the requirements. We, we're about out of time. Yeah. How optimistic are you? So I'm, uh, look, I'm optimistic that uh, we're going to see a big turnout. We're already seeing a great turnout in Nevada. Um, 
Um, for, for early voting, both registration and, and now early voting uh, has been very good signs. I'm not going to make any predictions because for this reason, it depends entirely on turnout, right? And uh, we have about eight races that are going to be 1%, right? <laughs> One or 2%. And so I, I don't know what the outcome will be. I can just say this. I'm optimistic compared to what people, where they thought we would be two years ago. And that's a good news story uh, for us. And uh, really, it's a testament to our, our candidates, both our senators running for re-election and our candidates. So uh, like, like the rest of the country, I will be watching the returns very closely, beginning with uh, the East Coast returns here, because I do believe that this is the most important midterm election of, of, of my lifetime, and I know a lot of people share that view. It's a lot of pressure on performance this year. Well, this is really a question of, of voter turnout. I mentioned Nevada uh, turnout. Uh, what's really good there is that, you know, Democrats more than Republicans uh, have drop-off voting for presidential elections to midterm elections, right? There's always a drop-off in voter participation presidential year versus midterms. But the drop-off historically is much larger among Democratic voters. Um, in Nevada and the other places, we're seeing that, that that trend is not happening. You're seeing a lot bigger uh, Democratic turnout. So I just hope that uh, remains the case for the next 12 days. Senator Chris Van Hollen, thank you so much for your time. We'll go thank on to the second half. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com dot com.